0: I've discovered over the years that uh, if you're going to speak for a half an hour or an hour you do well to improvise but if you're going to reduce your remarks to eight minutes you would better write them and so I will read let me find my glasses and I'll even tell you what I'm gonna read God Almighty Here we are. I apologize for using up half a minute. (laughs) I'm going to speak for no more than eight minutes, and so we'll leave seven minutes for questions. Let us see if I can keep this promise. Given such parameters, I will restrict myself to assertions. The first is that I love my country, and this love is selfish. America has accorded me the incomparable freedom to say what I think, which is one of the finest of all human freedoms. Have I also been appalled by my country? Yes, very much so when it is at its worst. Here, I can offer a metaphor. I would say that America has become comparable to a handsome seven-foot giant who weighs 300 pounds, is all muscle, and yet has to be reassured every few minutes that the odor of his armpits is splendid. (laughs) It seems we Americans have a desperate need to love ourselves outrageously, and this has become so compelling a sentiment that I must conclude the most powerful religion in America is now America itself. We are exceptionalists. At least half of this nation believes that God created America to be exceptional, to be superior to other earthly alternatives, in order for the US to be able to show others the way. It is a vanity so immense that I would call it hubris. And this American hubris has produced tragic blunders in foreign affairs. If we have had successes like the Marshall Plan, we've also had our 10 years in Vietnam with 2 million Asians killed as a result and so little to show for it and so, so little to show for it and no nothing to show for it our national shame. Over this last week, our media, with the all-out assistance of the Bush administration, has been deifying Ronald Reagan. Our media prospers by way of its built-in capacity for hysteria that tends to make every big story larger than it is. Last week, can I have had a visceral response, I told an Italian interviewer for La Stampa that in my opinion, Ronald Reagan was the most overrated president America has ever had. After which I felt obliged to add that he was also our second most ignorant chief executive. After which I said, guess who was first? That is an ungracious response to a former president's death, a man much beloved by half my country. But I do believe in what I said. To begin to explain the ferocity of this opinion permit me to accelerate through a good part of our American history over the last four decades. I promise to do this in three minutes. No laughter for that remark. Shortly after the Second World War, we entered into a Cold War with Russia. Our religious belief in ourselves as a nation encouraged us to be certain that communism was all evil and we were all good. We could believe nothing less. Our minds were not open to finer distinctions. We lived, after all, with a profound contradiction in ourselves. We were a Christian nation who believed in love, but we were also capitalist. We also believed in the beneficent powers of greed. Inhabiting such opposites was antipathetic to reason, so we chose to rely on super-simplicities. To repeat, communism was all evil, and we were all good. Ergo, we had to defeat communism. Otherwise, being evil, it would certainly destroy us. Richard Nixon, who had built his early career on this kind of patriotic dogma, was also wily enough, cynical enough, politically skilled enough, and never in the least embarrassed by his past, to recognize that in the aftermath of Stalin and Khrushchev, The USSR had begun to decline and was eager to seek for peace. Its economic and social problems had become so ineradicable that everyone in Russia, the Politburo and the people, knew that communism was not going to conquer the world for ages to come, if ever. The most they could hope for was the possibility that they could refashion their economy if the armaments race ended. Then perhaps they could begin to compete economically with America, a faint hope at best, but theirs. Nixon liked the odds. He had made peace with China. Now if he could make peace with Soviet Russia, he was bound to go down in history as a great president. To gain that laurel he was ready to discard American exceptionalism. For a man as politically oriented as Tricky Dick, our good versus their evil was not a belief you had to bleed for. No, it was just another useful tool for a smart public man. So he and Henry Kissinger began preliminary peace talks with Brezhnev. Serious changes were in the air. Then Watergate came along. We may never know if Watergate was a fluke or a successful operation originated by American exceptionalists, who were damned if Nixon was going to play footsie with the Politburo. Doing it with China had been bad enough by God. However, however it came about, Watergate arrived with perfect timing, perfect timing for the exceptionalists Watergate proceeded to render Richard Nixon politically impotent. So there was no peace, no dramatic reduction of the Cold War. And by the time Ronald Reagan came along, the old religion that America is the most exceptional nation on earth was back in full strength. Communism, by Reagan's logic, was not only ruthless and growing in power, but was indeed the evil empire. I remember visiting the USSR for the first time in 1984. I came back enraged at my country. The USSR was more depressed than any land I had ever visited. There was no hope in the faces one saw in the street and certainly no confidence that their system would ever inherit the world. The gloom was so palpable you could taste it. The so-called evil empire was instead the largest and most depressed third world nation on the globe. Nonetheless, Reagan chose to intensify the arms race. Promulgating the threat of Star Wars, America entered into a new spending contest with the Russians. At the end of this spree, the US succeeded in bankrupting the Soviet Union. Big money cleaned the smaller stakes off the table. We called it winning the Cold War. That magnified our notion that the U.S. was not only the most powerful country in the world, but now had a moral duty, or so the exceptionalists thought. We had a moral duty now to run the world. Our vanity was that we were the only ones who knew how to. For why the Republicans came in good time to choose George W. Bush even if the wisest of them had to know that he could well be the most unqualified candidate ever to run for president. However, the exceptionalists also knew that if you were obliged to characterize half of the population of the United States by one sentence, that sentence, that sentence might be obliged to declare that we Americans hate any question that takes longer than 10 seconds to answer. I repeat, We hate any question that takes longer than 10 seconds to answer. I would add that we now have the president we deserve. Thank you, I'm ready for your questions. Hello, Mr. Mailer. My name is Stephen Sachs. I'm currently a student at Oxford, and I first of all want to thank you for coming and sharing your time with us. Let me interrupt uh, you for a moment. We're going to have a real problem, because I am terribly deaf. I've got my hearing aids in, should, should and I all they do loud? is squeal. Uh, my name is so Stephen Sachs. I would ask you to make your questions sharp, pointed, and as clearly spoken as you, you can do them. Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to visit a friend in Budapest. His family remembered well the period of communism. His parents had hid from the tanks in 1956. I was able to drive around the country with him and see the legacy that the Soviets had left. Uh, and I can't hear a word. I'm sorry. You're yes. going to have to. Um all right. Help. Can you state a question without the preamble? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he'll get, get all right. that. To many in Eastern Europe, the evil empire was viewed as an empire and indeed viewed as evil. Should not the liberation of Eastern Europe be counted as at least some accomplishment of winning the Cold War? All right, okay. It's too easy. We were going on the basis that we were 100% good and they were 100% evil. It was a very complex country with hideous things going on in it, truly hideous things, no question and the liberties of many of the smaller countries around them were certainly curtailed. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, there was a movement within the Soviet Union to get better. There were people there who cared tremendously about the ideas they grew up with. They were also, believe it or not, a progressive country in terms of the citizens who lived within it because people who had been peasants in one generation, the children of peasants became doctors and so forth. There was, if you will, an intellectual establishment that was working to improve the country. I spoke once to one of the ministers who worked for Gorbachev, and he said, in the worst days of Stalin, my father lived on a small commune, and occasionally someone would come to him to ask him to make a chair, because he was a very good carpenter. And when they wanted to pay him, he wouldn't accept any money. He'd say, I'm a communist, we share things. Of course, I do it for nothing. My point is that nations are immensely complex, and the most dangerous thing we can do in international relations is precisely to start characterizing them in a sentence, in taking 10 seconds to answer what the problem might be. The real point to it that I, I believe is one of my deepest beliefs is that democracy is not something you inject into nations. It inspires all kinds of side diseases. Democracy is a grace. Democracy is achieved by countries that have, who have people who are willing to die for the dream that they will have democracy, people who are willing to fight for the need to have democracy. Democracy needs, democracy needs people to come to it from within, not from without, because when it comes from without, it's exactly like being under the aegis of a wealthy relative you don't like who sends you through college and tells you how much to chip waiters. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Iraq is the absolute example of that. The people of Iraq hated Saddam Hussein. They wanted to get rid of him. I would say, and this may be very unpopular here, I would say it was their duty to get rid of him, not ours, for a very simple reason. What a nation does not achieve on its own never works. It gets polluted, it gets compromised, it gets corrupted, it gets abused, which is exactly what's happening in Iraq now. So hardly, yes. What happened, actually, is the way those small nations broke away from the Soviet Union was precisely because they dared to. The Soviet Union became weaker, and they dared to. The The mic's gone. So no one heard me in the back. Oh, no, it just fell off just now. All right. I guess next question, please. Thank you. We only have one, time for one more question. This Basil Dahiet with the biotechnology company Zencore. There's a lot of talk about a growing culture war in America. Given your perspective you can provide from the last 50 years of history, is our society more polarized now than it was or is it just media hype? No, I think there's a culture war deepening, but I also... I also believe that the right wing in America is, unfortunately, much tougher and much smarter and much more wily than the left in America. I was speaking oh, this, last summer to a very liberal group who were very opposed to Bush, and it was a marvelously funny evening. We laughed all evening long. We laughed at how silly Bush was and how ridiculous he was and how ridiculous the Republicans were, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I finally, when I got up to speak, I was so annoyed that I said, we've been laughing at the right wing for 50 years, and it seems to me that they are now more powerful than they were when we started. The recognition that I think has to be made is what I tried to put across in this little piece today, which is that we are at present, this country at present is being run by exceptionalists, people who believe that America has a special destiny and that America deserves to run the world, and in fact, the world will collapse one way or another if America does not run it. The world will go to pot. And this, as I say, is American hubris. And it seems to me that if there's a war going on now, a big divide in the nation, it comes precisely because of this sense of outrage in so many of us who are liberal or on the left, or in my case, a left conservative Uh, which has no meaning at all Um, but I do love the term. Uh, But nonetheless, the the fighting edge of this deep dispute is whether we are absolutely out of the category of other countries or whether we are ready again to join some highly sophisticated and developed countries in facing the deep and enormous problems that face us in the 20th century. I'm gonna end on this note. 21st century. This is the most dangerous century yet in human history because this is the first century. To cite Bill Clinton's wonderful optimistic words last night, this is the first century where we can have a legitimate fear that we will never see the end of this century because the world has become so out of focus and so ill-defined and so sloganized and so distorted by people who are looking for cheap approaches to world power that we may end up by blowing ourselves up, diseasing ourselves out of existence, doing God knows what to ourselves, reverting to lower states of existence, whatever. But to have the notion that this is an easy world and everything is gonna get better, ignores problems that are so large that uh, we would do better to start talking about what's not right with America rather than what is so splendid about this country. And I say this out of my love of this country because it's been marvelous to me, but it isn't necessarily marvelous to the rest of the world. Thank you.